The biggest problem we have is not the people who willfully decide to reject 200 years of basic science. The bigger problem is the number of people who say it's real, but they don't think it matters to them. The words of Catherine Hayhoe, Climate Ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. Hey everyone, welcome to the Manacast, conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours, and for the world. My name is Jacob Garrett, and with me as always is Jonathan Cornford, as well as two special guests, Jane Kelly, who is the Creation and Climate Justice Coordinator for Common Grace, and Jessica Morthorpe, the founder and director of Five Leaf Eco Awards. Thanks both for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jacob, and thanks, Jonathan. Lovely to be here. If this is your first time listening to the Manacast, Manacast is the podcast of an organisation called Managum. Managum is a ministry all about discovering and living into the implications of Christian faith for economics and ecology. We record the Manacast from the lands of First Nations peoples. I'm talking to you today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'm talking to you from the lands of the Jarjarung, who are, I guess, a sister uh, group of the Wurundjeri, all, all part of the Kulin Nations of Southern Victoria. And I'm on Jarjarung land as well. And I find myself on the lands of the Tugagul clan of the Darug Nation in uh, Western Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands, and we pay our respects to the elders past and present. As you might have guessed from that opening quote, today we're talking about climate change. Specifically, we're talking about the relationship between climate change and the Christian church. So to orient us, perhaps Jessica will throw to you first. Can you give us your take on where we are in March 2023 in terms of responding to climate change globally as well as in Australia? Yeah, I mean, to put it simply, what I think we're very behind. <laughs> yep. We have taken a long time to even start getting into gear and take action, um, and we should have been acting 30-plus years ago. Um, but I think what excites me at the moment is that there does seem to be a bit of a shift occurring. Um, we are, I think, hearing less climate denial. Um, we're hearing more acceptance from people that climate change is happening as increasingly um, it's just becoming harder and harder to deny. Um, mm. I mean, th the science has been solid for a very long time, but people are starting to see the disasters and starting to understand how this is going to impact on their own lives and therefore starting to see that this might be something we actually need to do something about. Um, and so, yeah, that's creating a shift towards action. Um, but the challenge at the moment is getting people to realize just how quickly we need to change. Mm -hmm. where, where, what's your read on where we're at in Australia specifically, Jess? Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm too specific, that could get me in trouble, but um, <laughs> I, I right. think. We, we, we invite you to get yourself in trouble on this podcast. <laughs> I think people have been really um, encouraged by the change of government federally um, and are really hoping to see some real action now. Um, but I would really put it to Labor to actually, um, yeah, to, to deliver on that promise and to give us the change that we need and not to dilly-dally around or continue to approve fossil fuel extraction projects um, because we need to be taking action, far more action than we are, and we need to do it quickly. Um, and they can't just rest, rest on their laurels because they're doing a bit more than the last group um, for too long. Mm. Would you agree with that, Jane? A hundred percent. Uh, we know that this is the decade where we have to see serious 
incredible and rapid action. The window, the the science keeps telling us uh, that the window for action is rapidly closing if we want to try to be anywhere close to uh, 1.5 degrees uh, warming. I'd agree with Jess that there's a great wind of hope uh, rushing through those of us who care about seeing action on climate change with the change of government federally. Uh, but, I mean, within that, I mean, particularly the last decade or so, perhaps there's been quite a lot of reason to feel discouraged. And Jess, I know you've done a lot of work on climate anxiety and climate grief in the church. How does that factor in, do you think, to even just this this new wind of hope, as you put it, Jane? How do those two things sit together for you two? Yeah, I mean, um, there is so much anxiety and grief in our community around climate, um, much of it unacknowledged. Mm. Um, some of it, yeah, feeding into people's behaviour without them even being aware that it is. Mm. Um, so, yeah, um, Psychology for a Safe Climate, um, who are a, a wonderful organisation, um, they were founded um, originally to to try and help people, um, yeah, understand those emotions um, and how they feed into things like climate denial mm. um, because... If you're feeling really threatened and anxious about climate and about what that might mean for your life, for your children's lives, for your grandchildren's lives, um, then it can be a lot easier to simply, um, you know, find some dodgy sources on the internet that allow you to believe that climate change isn't happening um, rather than... than trying to face and deal with the emotional implications of the reality that it is happening. Um, and yeah, so, so there's a, there's that, um, huge emotional component that, that does feed into things like climate denial. Um, and PSC is now also helping people, um, with the climate grief and anxiety that they're feeling as, the climate crisis gets worse and worse um and yeah and and that that is everywhere and and so many people are feeling it and um it's really prevalent in our churches as well um but mm. very rarely acknowledged very 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 rarely mm. um anything is um done to address that in our churches mm. you said it affects people um, in your observation, ways that they're potentially not even aware of. What sort of things do you think of? Um, so uh, psychologists that I've talked to have said that, for example, people will come into um, therapy with, you know, their presenting problem um, might be um, that they need couples therapy or it might be that they're um, struggling at work or something like that. But when, when you talk to them and work with them, you realise that, well, maybe the root of some of the issues that they're having as a couple is actually um, that the woman, for example, or, or one partner um, is, you know, really feeling climate anxiety and really, really wants to take action um, at home and... The other partner is um, maybe not feeling that same level of anxiety um, and therefore maybe not as motivated into action. Um, and it's really hard when you're at a different level of concern and, and wanting to take a different level of action from your partner um, because just logistically making things happen if you're not both on the same page um, becomes a, a real stress mm. point. Um and yeah, and um, you know, maybe at work you're struggling because um, you know, you, you think that it's just a bad job or that it's not the right fit for you or whatever, but but when you dig down deeper it might come back to actually you're starting to wonder, well, you know, um, if the world's headed in a bad direction and I don't know what the future is, like 
is this the thing that I want to be spending so much of my time on or like you know do I need to be kind of seizing the day and and um trying to get a little bit of enjoyment out of life before <laughs> civilization collapses or you know th these are some of the things that people are anxious about um and yeah like existential crises for people um and how how they're thinking about the future and how they're planning for the future I've met high school students um who have said to me, oh, you know, I would like to study engineering at uni, um, you know, if if climate change allows me. Mm. Like, um, you know, the, these students, instead of being able to have the future that most of us had where, you know, you're planning to go to uni and you're planning to do this and you're excited about the future and you're excited about the job that you're going to have, these young people are actually wondering if that future is even going to exist. Yeah, I think it's particularly huge for that younger generation. I don't think we've really paid attention to the scale of what it means for them. And I mean, just here, I hear in, in the habits of speech of some young people just in throwaway comments will just say, oh, the, the world's screwed anyway. Uh, you know, and then they're not particularly, uh, it's just in a, a throwaway line in a conversation. But actually, if you pay attention to where, where that must be, come from more deeply that's a a way of thinking about the future which is is huge i don't think we've really uh, come to terms with how much we need to pay more attention to that with young people yeah it's terrifying absolutely terrifying um and we have global studies that tell us how many of them are concerned and that um basically they feel betrayed by their governments and betrayed by the lack of action mm. Jane, with your experience working with churches, do you see that underlying like despondency and resignation or the flip side of the eat, drink and tomorrow we die thing playing out either consciously or unconsciously for people, even like particularly young people maybe? I was just reflecting on that and I think, I mean, I think like any large group, you've probably got both levels of extremes, you've got a mixture of responses there. Um, I think for the Australian church, we've been able to uh, have an, a, a position of denial about it because it had um, up until recently probably hasn't hit our shores that much. And so that reveals our privilege, basically. Mm. Um, there are plenty of, um, of places and people around the world who this has been their lived experience for now uh, several decades. Um, and so I think I think for mine in the church, the problem has been what is being lived out there is an experience sitting alongside our interpretation of, um, of how we're meant to engage with creation. And we have this... Um, responsive, I think probably because, and again, I'm probably not um, the person to, to give the um, rundown on this, the historical rundown, but because the environmental movement came out of out of um, um, places that the church weren't really uh, involved in, there's been um, a bit, fair bit of a suspicion about the yes. environmental movement. Yep. And so... Um, I can remember having a conversation with, um, I won't reveal who, um, but a relative, and um, who said to me, oh, look, it's good that you're involved in environmental stuff, but isn't like, shouldn't you be um, more concerned about the gospel message and saving people's souls? And, um, and so I think, we, yeah, we have this disconnect of, um, of what Christians are meant to be doing in this world, whether it be in response to what is happening with climate change or um, how we respond to people seeking asylum or First Nations people in Australia who are seeking justice and that somehow we go, those are lesser than this um, saving an individual's soul. And, mm. um, and I think I have, my experience has been that uh, a growing number of Christians sitting in churches are saying, I, I feel that there's a, a reason, a moral and ethical reason behind why I should care about this 
but I cannot make that connection with what I'm hearing from the front of the church a lot mm. of the time. Yes. And that's not across all denominations, um, mm. and, but that's that's a generalisation that they go, I, there's something stirring in my heart here, but I can't make that connection. And so I think a lot of Christians have um, have come to places where they either walk out of the church because they can't see that or they're mm. trying to find an alternative community that does, um, yeah, bring and and marry um, their their real life concerns alongside their real life faith. Mm. Jane, it's often the case, or it seems to be the case. It's often um, so. Often, a lot of denominations uh, have quite um, strong statements around climate state, climate change at the senior and official level. So, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Communion, the World Evangelical Alliance, all these have quite some quite strong things to say about climate change but there's often a real a quite a big disjuncture between what's set up there and what's actually happening down at the local level do you do you see that or do you is that starting to shift at all i as not an expert on this i have been pondering this and wondering whether it's to do with bad theology um dare i say (laughs) Mm. um that we have in, in Western uh, Christian circles, we have this very individualistic um, attitude of what the gospel is meant to be. And so when you shut down and um, and we have uh, Jesus, when he was asked to summarise all of the commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And I think in um, my experience of um, the Western Church is that we don't do so well on the second part of that uh, call. Mm. And mm. Um, dare I say that I actually think that we've um, we've raised up the economy in a way that I don't know. That, um, I, well, I look at the scriptures and Jesus is very clear about how you cannot serve two gods and I think that that's part of it. We struggle to... Um, to make changes where it might impact on my life. And, mm. um, yes, I, I think that perhaps we need to go back and um, it's hard when, what's the saying about talking about asking a fish what it what water feels like, that we swim in this um, and we have grown up in this, if you have grown up in the church, uh, this very individualistic attitude towards salvation and towards our relationship with God. And we've managed to cut ourselves off from all of the other portions and, and elements of creation. We somehow see ourselves as apart from it, which is probably part of the fall, I, I would imagine, in um, in theological terms that yeah, we didn't see ourselves as part of God's creation. We saw ourselves as mini-gods. Um, mm. And I think we need to go back and um, and listen to um, a lot of Indigenous cultures around their understanding and connection with uh, creation and then go back and reread our Bibles with fresh new perspectives on, on what the message is there. Mm. Well, there's no doubt the church has been, well, large segments of the church have been way behind in coming to terms with this. Um, but you, you both are involved in works that are engaging the church around climate change. So maybe this would be a good chance to hear more directly about what you do and uh, and how you've gone about engaging the church. So maybe we'll, we'll turn, turn to you first, Jess, and do you want to tell us a bit about your work with churches around climate change? Uh, yeah, so in 2008, I founded the Five Leaf Eco Awards, which is a national ecumenical environmental change program for churches. Um, and so we offer a range of non-competitive criteria-based awards and um, churches just fulfil the criteria um, and then get presented with a certificate. Um, and it's become a powerful thing because it shows churches and those taking action within their churches that they're not alone, um, that there are other people in other churches who are also taking action for God's creation. 
Um, and it's an opportunity to acknowledge and celebrate the work that has been done um, and to try and encourage people on towards doing even more um, and, yeah, together trying to uh, create a greener church in Australia um, and serve God through that action. So what's involved in that accreditation process? Uh, so the five leaves are our five different areas. So there's buildings, congregation, worship, outreach and community leadership. Um, so our first award is the basic certificate and it asks you to do a little bit of action in all of those areas, uh, trying to encourage churches to be quite holistic in how they approach this. Um, and then there's advanced awards in each of those areas and we now have a climate activism award as well. Um, and yeah, so, you know, being a green church isn't about just putting solar panels on your roof. Um, that's a wonderful thing to do if you can. Um, but it's also about how do we start moving towards, um, yeah, making care for creation at the centre of everything that we do um, and all of our kind of life um, witness and service that we're doing as a church. Hmm. Okay. And and what about you, Jane? What, what how, how would you describe your work with churches around climate change? Yeah, so Common Grace uh, is a movement of individuals, churches and communities, and we're pursuing Jesus and justice together for the flourishing of all peoples and all creation. So we generally live in an online um, capacity. We have no physical office. We have uh, eight part-time staff who are working across uh, the, uh, the nation uh, with some wonderful key volunteers who help us as well. Um, and we have four justice areas. Uh, we're led by and listened to deeply our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Christian leaders. We're seeking uh, a just world for those seeking asylum and refugees. We are seeking to um, see the church be a safe place for those who are fleeing domestic and family violence. And we also are seeking a beautiful and good earth in uh, creation and climate justice. And so most recently, um, the campaign that I was involved in at Common Grace was called Knit for Climate Action, where about two or three years ago now, um, actually Jess Moorthorpe had this wonderful idea of knitting climate stripe scarves, which... Um, so it's basically a scarf of 100 years of climate data. So if you've seen Ed Hawkins' climate stripes, which start, um, our scarves start at 1919 with the um, global average temperatures up to 2019. And as you could imagine, um, they start with below average temperatures in these beautiful dark blues, move through into some creams, yellows, and then as we get to 2019, they're very alarming dark reds. And so we had this, this idea to have these scarves knitted by Australian Christians. They um, then sent them to us, um, packaged them all up, and we um, then went out to our movement and said, we'd love to gift these climate scarves to every federal MP and senator in the lead up to the 2021 uh, COP. So that was COP26 in Glasgow. Um, for those who um, have put uh, federal politics of that time of, out of your mind, we were basically still wrangling about whether or not we as a nation could sign up for net zero by 2050. And so yes. the idea behind these scales was to have conversations to say that Australian Christians are concerned about the climate and uh, really want to rally behind the Australian government and encourage them to start to take credible and rapid action. And I think because... Traditionally, um, Christians are seen as sitting at slightly more conservative end of um, politics. We were an unusual voice. And also because most of our scarves were knitted by women, generally over the age of 50, 
Um, and it's a really hard-hearted politician who rejects a, um, a gentle and beautiful and handmade gift from a um, one of his constituents saying, I, I spent all this time knitting this for you because I care so much about the climate and about our good creation. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really beautiful campaign. I want to just briefly return, you like, Jane, you said um, Christians often seen as occupying the conservative end of the spectrum. And we talked earlier about um, it seems as though there's this kind of competition between the the Christian faith. What 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 is the main vocation of the Christian? Is it the gospel? Is it creation care? Is it you know? I mean, Common Grace says pursuing Jesus and justice. Those things aren't in competition; they're mutually reinforcing. I would think. What what is the or or Jess, like you said? Um, what does it look like to have a church that's putting creation care at the center? Um, I I know some Christians who might wrangle at that, thinking, "Well, Jesus must be the center," and but I assume that's not uh, it's not either or for you. No, I mean, um, if you talk about the gospel, for for me, part of the gospel is that God so loved the world. Um, you know, caring for creation which belongs to and is loved by and is held in being by God and by Christ um, and filled with the Holy Spirit, um, that that is, yeah, for me, the very centre of what it means to be Christian and, and to um, follow the gospel. Um, and, yeah, not all Christians see it that way. Um, but I would argue that that probably has more to do with political and historical factors, um, than it has to do with scripture and the action of God that we're seeing in the world. Yeah, sure. Hmm. And so if you, if you were to see that play out in the local church, I know you've written a little piece on your website about this. Um, what, what does like properly robust, deep rather than just superficial, you know, not just, um, the easy things, but what, it, what does a deep commitment at the local church level as a community to taking action on climate change look like in your imagination? I mean, I, I wrote that piece many years ago and I don't think we have to imagine it anymore. I, I think there are many local churches who are living it out. Um, and who have um, had what Pope Francis would call that ecological conversion, um, who have had that that heart moment and that heart connection with God's creation and with God's call to us to care for it um, and to love it and to serve God by serving creation and protecting it and fighting for it. Um, so... Yeah, um, you know, there's a million and one different ways that that can translate into practical action. And I think it's really important that each church does that in the way that suits their context and their community. Um, But what matters and what unites us is that, yeah, heart connection and that um, making, making this truly part of our our faith and our Christian discipleship hmm. um, to take action on these areas. So I, it's, I, I, it's, I like that you say every church has to figure it out in their context, but just so our listeners can get some more, um, I get a bit more concrete, can you give us some examples some, of some things you'd like to see more of, Jess? Uh, I mean, I can, I can talk <laughs> for hours about the Just the give things. us a few, you know, give us something... <laughs> You could take the top ones off your list. Um, well, I mean, as I said, not not every church can do solar panels. If you can, that's great. If you can't, um, then switching to green power or um, investing in renewables in your community are really great practical actions. But also how can you um, bring the environment into your 
pattern of worship and life. Um, so some churches do season of creation, some churches do a carbon fast in Lent. Um, how can you have services outside? How can you remind people that actually, you know, the greatest cathedral and the greatest place to connect with God is outside in God's creation, not in our little boxes. Um, a lot of churches are doing these wonderful spiritual bushwalks now. So, you know, walking through creation in a deliberate prayerful way and connecting with God as they're doing that. Um, encouraging your community to take action. Um, you know, what we do in our churches is one thing, but if we really want to change the world, then it's about um, harnessing our communities, getting them to change their behaviour, getting them to advocate to our governments for the change that we need. Um, community gardens are incredible. They're both wonderful from an environmental point of view and they literally save lives um, by creating that community and connection and helping isolated people to have somewhere to connect with the church. Um, repair cafes are, are a really wonderful way um, that church communities can take the skills that many of our members have, um, particularly many of our older members, um, and help other people of often younger people perhaps who who'd really like to learn those skills um to yeah learn how to to fix their things um mm. or to start um you know knitting sewing fermenting um cooking there's so many wonderful things um that are part of a more sustainable life um that churches can be doing and can be leading their communities in um and it all builds up to a picture of hope and a picture of a different way of living. Amen. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, well, that, that, that was a decent list, Jess. That was pretty good. <laughs> and, and I mean, I like, so you, you've progressed from really talking about things at the local church level and you've moved really more to, to being politically active. Uh, and in our earlier conversation, we, we, we you started out pointing out, um, you know, the traditional uh, suspicion, even hostility there's been between a lot of Christians and the environmental movement. And, and I would say the Greens Party specifically, uh, you know, for some Christians, um, the point of view is, is something like, well, if the Greens say that, then I think the opposite. Um, <laughs> uh, so, which has been a real blockage for Christians to come to climate change. And hopefully that's some of that starting to 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 change but if we as we move to thinking about being politically active and around climate change uh, what what thoughts do you guys have about how we can uh, how the church places itself churches uh and i guess we got two things two, there's two parts of the question there's christians individually and then there's churches as institutions uh themselves how they how they interact in that broader scene of uh of climate activism, how they interact and collaborate with other environmental organisations, or, or you know, if uh, um, we've had in our recent legislation in Parliament, the Greens have been pushing a particular line. Can churches agree with anything the Greens Party say? Um, yeah. So, Jane, what are your thoughts around that sort of stuff? Um, reflecting on that, I, I mean, I find the word, and um, I know that I'm amongst friends here, but where people want to separate and say, oh, well. I don't want to be too political. Life mm. is political. Mm. <laughs> the church is political. And if you don't think that, then um, you probably need to go away and do a little bit of church history. Um, and so I can't see how you separate. They, what is that people think is politics is that there's this white building down in Canberra and that's where all this stuff happens that is separated. Um Again, I would um, argue that we need to check our privilege if we think that we can be separated from politics because it clearly means that we're, the, the responses that politicians are making are so easy for us to absorb into our lives that they're not, um, not difficult for us to push back on. But if you're 
um, someone who is homeless. There are decisions that are made on politics that adversely affect you. If you are a single parent and there are decisions made on making, say, single mothers return to work for a certain amount of time, um, the moment that their children hit school, irrespective of what other things might be going on in their lives, that's political. Um, So I, I think that you look at the way Jesus interacted. He was highly political. Um, it's yeah. it, it's the reason that he um, he caused so much attention is because those in power went, oh my gosh, he's drawing too much attention. We're going to get in trouble here politically. Um, so I would say that as Christians, if you are getting your hands dirty in real life situations, in what this world is wrestling with, you cannot be um, in that and not be what we term political. Um, mm. So that would be my little rant for today. <laughs> but do you have any any um, any view, uh, advice on how churches work collaborative? Like, I mean, do other groups even want yeah. to work with churches? And you know, you know. Uh, so, yep. where are things at in terms of how we think about being, you know, the the broader civil society action and the church's place in in Australia? Yeah, so Common Grace um, has the um, privilege of working alongside a number of uh, climate um, advocacy groups. We're um, a member of the Climate Action Network of Australia. And last year I um, had the opportunity to go to the conference first time after a while because of COVID and people would say, oh, Common Grace, who are you? And the moment I said Christians who cared about the climate, there were a lot of people who you could see their brains sort of exploding <laughs> of how do I bring this together. Oh, dear. Um, that's, that's not a good sign, is it? <laughs> no, but but then you could see them, oh, okay, this, this means that that there are Christians who care yeah. about this. And, and so, yeah, they had to sort of... Um, I guess, readjust some of their um, assumptions about Christianity. Mm. Um, And, yes, we, through Common Grace, through the conversations that we've had with um, people in the um, the Greens party, I can tell you the suspicion goes both ways. The Greens are highly suspicious of people who label themselves Christians. Um, And so I think that we are in there being able to be a gracious voice into places where they have heard Christians just as the people who say no and the people who, as you, as you were saying, Jonathan, that they say one thing and, and Christians just come in and attack and, and use their power. I mean, we are delusional if you don't think that the, the church has significant power in Australia and use our power to influence uh, those who are in uh, positions of political leadership. Um, so I think uh, I've had, yeah, the great honour to be there saying um, not all Christians, not all Christians, not all Christians. Um, and I, I state now I am absolutely 100% a Bible-believing Christian. I believe Jesus literally was born, literally uh, lived, literally died and literally rose again. So um, I'm not... <laughs> And I believe that God cares so deeply about all of his creation and weeps that we have not taken up the responsibility to be stewards of this. That is what he said. The start of of scripture, you go right back to our Bible, and that was our primary role was to be stewards of this creation and to look after it, to be God's ambassador on this earth, and we have not done that well. Amen. On that, though, like I I talk to Christians who I know, friends of mine, who they do see that tension between kind of and they have that suspicion of um, environmentalists more broadly. and, And some of them critique, well, it's like it's like their religion. And so they're suspicious on this on these grounds of like almost you don't want to buy into the false god of of eco worship and eco utopia but at the same time like as you're saying there's there are all these people that notice the world we're in and notice what needs to happen and for the love of people and non-humans are taking radical action 
I think of friends of mine who have been part of Extinction Rebellion. And I think for many Christians, that sort of thing, like direct action, blocking up uh, intersections, gluing yourselves to things, like that's just beyond the pale. What place do you think there is for radical direct action on something like climate change from a Christian perspective? Um, I, I, I've never been involved in um, direct action, I'll state that. Um, maybe this is a little controversial and you can, you guys can all knock me down about this, but I don't actually think um, throwing a can of soup at a protected artwork is particularly radical. Like I, I get that it's attention grabbing, but this isn't like they burnt mm. the Mona Lisa. And when you think about what is actually being destroyed, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, and, and stopping traffic, I get that it's an inconvenience and it's frustrating and and there will be people who have been caught up in that who may have had a um, more difficult situation um, trying to get to hospital or something, but it it doesn't strike me as, like, mm. what, when you look at what they're, they're trying to draw attention to, that mm. we... Um, we are very likely, all four of us, going to live to see the complete destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. That seems incredibly destructive to me. And yet we don't, large portions of us, of the community, don't bat an eyelid or we say, oh, that's terrible and go on doing what we're doing. Mm, that same resignation and sort of despondency. Yeah, and I was listening to another um, podcast called Outrage, Outrage and Optimism and they've just been wrestling with um, how the moderates and the radicals and sometimes within the climate movement they can see each other as enemies and saying sometimes we need both. We need the moderates sometimes yes. to be in on the inside, having the conversations. The radicals are outside um, beating the drums, yeah, gluing themselves to the, the road and um, the moderates are then able to turn to um, those in power and say, look, if we don't get an agreement here, they're going to get worse. So <laughs> we need to respond. They're getting louder. There are more of them. So let's try to find a way to respond to this. And I think um, as we're recording uh, this week, we've seen that the federal Labor government and the Greens have come to an agreement on the safeguard mechanisms and mm. that has been shifted and there's been lots of conversations within climate organisations going and having conversations with their uh, their um governments so if, if you're in a labor um, electorate going and saying we want to see more change and we want to see um, better response here and the greens sticking to their line of we've got to do better and then the labor party being able to shift on that and be able to say well the people want this so we're not we're not leaping ahead in our um, in our decisions here and so I think there is a place for or those radicals, as we might call them, to be mm. out there saying not enough, not enough, not enough, because if we don't, as Jess said earlier in the podcast, um, we sit back and go, oh, well, tick, we've got the safeguard mechanisms um, amendments through, or tick, we have said last year through the Climate um, 2020 Act um, that we commit to 43% by 2030. Well, we've got to put that into action. And so it's those mm. who keep saying more, you've got to do more, look down the line. This, this was the next step, but there are so many more steps and they need to be done mm. in a sprint uh, um, rather than in this slow dawdle that we have done um, for a while. So, I, yeah, I, I haven't felt called to be involved in Extinction Rebellion, but I see their place. I think I think there's a good case to be made that the history of social change is often a history of good cop bad cop <laughs> yeah. actors, uh, you know, and and you do need those those voices because if if you've only got moderates, uh, then they're they're in for much of the political environment easy to ignore or to you know to take little bits. You need those people who are going to push the dial. And for a long time, they seem, you know, outlandish and irrelevant till the crisis happens. And then they start to seem a bit more reasonable and the, the moderates are able to get more purchase. You know, you need those people inside the tent and out the, outside the tent yeah. on these things. Absolutely.
these movements come out of desperation and they come out of the lack of political action. So if, yeah, if our governments had started acting 30 years ago and we were well on the way to addressing climate change, then people would not be in a place of despair that says that the only way they can get the government's attention is mm, to take yes. these radical yes. actions. Which could be more um, radical, as Jane's saying, you know, if you want to talk about extremism. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and as Jonathan said, you know, women didn't get their yes. rights um, by, you know, only only following the so-called correct process. Mm. There's a real position of privilege that says yes. that the only way yes. that we're allowed to be part of our society and be citizens is by following particular processes, um, and and it's another way of of hobbling us. It's it's saying you only get to have a voice if you're a fossil fuel company who can pay lobbyists to be in the ear of the politicians all day and all night. Mm. Well, we as a society have the right to have our voices heard as well, not just those who have the money to do those things or those who have the money to donate to political parties. So, um, yeah, uh, as as long as there are Christians who care and Christians who care enough to be desperate and frightened of the future we're creating, then there will be Christians who need to and want to be involved in organisations like Extinction Rebellion. Okay, Jane and, and Jess, um, through your, your climate activism, both inside and outside the tent over time, you somehow, you both managed to get elected to office. Um, one of you is elected prime minister and the other state premier. You can choose which is which. Um, this is a way of, of thinking. If, if you're, you're now prime minister and state premier together and you're having a chat, um, what would be your top actions? And th- this is my way of getting... Uh, trying to so there are a lot of be a lot of listeners who hear stuff in the press around you know different climate policies and stuff and it's all very confusing. Uh, from what you understand of climate policy and where we need to go concretely, what are the things? Um, even if we could dial back the clock, uh, you know, um, a week or so, and labor and there's a legislation about to be uh, passed in Parliament. What would you uh, choose for? What would be your top actions as government? Who wants to take that first? Can I mix it up and say um, I probably not particularly popular position, but I'm happy to take the position of opposition leader and allow Jess to be the PM. Cool. <laughs> actually, uh, considering our current um, political climate, with red now being at federal and state level across everywhere except Tasmania. I still reckon we're going to have difficulties because of where the opposition are. So I'm happy to be yes. the opposition leader and work um, okay. in bipartisan support with our uh, PM, uh, Jessica Moorthorpe. So, Jess, off you go. You suggest something to me and I'll say whether or not I support it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great, Jane. And, I mean, yeah, like we're talking about the survival of the planet and Australia is one of the most vulnerable industrial developed countries in the world to the impacts of climate change we've already been seeing that through you know the black summer bushfires um the flooding you know we we are so vulnerable we have so many reasons to be taking action so it should be bipartisan we we every party of politics should be trying to take action on this and what we should be arguing about is how to do it best Okay, here, here. So, what's your actions, Jess? What, what, what? Give me policy number one. I mean, uh, pe- people have been talking about how we basically need to go on to a war footing. So, just make everything about climate, um, and obviously that means banning all fossil fuel extraction and use, 
Um, it means electrifying everything and switching everything over to renewables. Um, it means, for me, actually funding um, species and ecosystem conservation um, because basically scientists are telling us that extinctions are a choice. We are choosing to allow species to go extinct because we don't want to put the money that it would require to actually save them. Um, and I think that, yeah, that that makes God weep and I really hate seeing extinctions, so that is definitely something I'd be passionate about reversing. Um, and we need to invest in nature education and connection because, um, yeah, in the Christian church, we have this call of our faith um, to connect with nature and to connect with God's presence in nature. Um, but all of our society, whatever your faith or um, if you're not from a faith background, we still all need to connect with nature and love it and um, build that as the foundation which will encourage us to keep engaging in environmental care and concern into the future. Mm. And an opposition leader, Jane, a very amenable opposition yes. leader. What do you have any other things to to add or yeah. things that you would propose? Um, I heartily support everything. We're going to see that just roll through the House of Representatives and the Senate with no opposition whatsoever. <laughs> um, I would suggest that we need to um, really engage with our First Nations people. Uh, they have been placed here by God. To, as the original caretakers of this land, they have never ceded that care. Um, as Bruce Pascoe says, for 65,000 years, they sustained and looked after this land. And then he says, you're welcome. And, um, and we have completely stuffed it up in the space of less than 250 years. We need to go back and speak to those who were placed here by our creator God who have such deep and rich knowledge of these lands so that we can understand how we have so comprehensively messed this up. Um, so, yes, and I would um, put a plug in there for The Voice is a wonderful way for us to actually hear from First Nations people. So a very enthusiastic yes for me for the upcoming referendum. Um, and I would also encourage us to look, as um, Prime Minister Morthorpe has said, that we should be moving away. No new coal or gas. Uh, we need to electrify and when we talk about 100% renewable, um, I'm really enthused by uh, people like Saul Griffith who say we don't, as Australians, we shouldn't be aiming for 100%. We have enough wind, solar, uh, hydro to be able to uh, produce 500 to 700% of our energy, wow. which just to allow the mass to sort of fall in means that we can be continue to be an exporter of energy but energy of renewables and these are again I am not a um, an engineer uh, expert in this area but I listen to people like Saul Griffith who say we have the capacity to be doing this now and in this decade of transition to be doing it rapidly stop putting money into fossil fuels all those subsidies need to stop and we need to redirect them into renewable energy wow i have to say the opposition has come a long way in a very short space of time that's that's quite remarkable just for those i don't have a bald head i do have hair on my head <laughs> where so like on that renewable question um, particularly, it prompts me to think like, what's the place for a downshifting in lifestyle? Because if it, it, it seems like a lot of people um, are happy with green changes, whatever they might be, deep or superficial, as long as it doesn't really ask much of them in terms of uh, their earning capacity after tax or the way they sort of have ordered and structured their lives. Or increase the cost of living. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm, <laughs> it might be true. I don't know. I haven't looked into it in the Australian context to that degree. But I know that many people are saying renewables, at least for the foreseeable future, in many places can't 
compete with fossil fuels for the energy density, um, in which case, like the energy production overall will be less and you've got the issues of batteries and, and those sorts of things as well. All of which suggests that at least for many people, if not all people, there will be some element of um, personal sacrifice and personal cost to taking a new political direction on climate change. What, what do you see as the interaction between the macro and the micro, the personal and the political on that point? Let's not frame it as losing something, though. Um, like, yeah, the those who oppose the environmental movement like to accuse us of wanting to go back to being cavemen. Like, <laughs> let, let, let's not make it about what we're losing. Um, sure, we might need to be more efficient in how we use energy, but most people I know it seems to me, are pretty miserable. You know, we, we, we push ourselves um, to, to work in jobs that exhaust us. If we've got any energy left, we might um, spend that looking after our kids or our families. Um, and... But we're always trying to get more. We're always trying to get um, higher paid jobs and we're always trying to work more hours even though real wages haven't increased in decades and, um, you know, the the profits from our extra labour are not coming to us as workers. Um, and, And everybody's trapped in this rat race and... They don't know their neighbours and they don't know their communities because there's no time um, and no energy and no connection and we've been told this myth that we're all individuals and that we should all be individuals. Um, But we're a communal species and and so how about instead of what we're losing, we think about what we might gain and the connections we might be able to recreate um so um i've been been part of some local communities doing amazing things in my area um and it's been focused around environmental action um so it might be you know going to a community pantry um and buying food that's sourced locally and ethically or it might be going to a mending workshop so that we can repair our clothes instead of throwing them away. Um, or it might be going to one of those repair cafes I mentioned. Um, and it might be a group that are doing um, climate action and activism. And, yeah, so, like, you're going in order to care for the environment. But what I've been getting out of those groups is friends Mm. and connections and Mm. people who can give me advice about how to um, handle my my toddler and um, people who can um, be there when it all gets too much and I need support. Um, So by rebuilding our connections and rebuilding our communities and building resilience into those communities um that's what we're going to need when the next bushfire hits when the next flood comes um that's how we respond well to the challenges that climate is going to bring us by knowing each other and loving each other and being able to rely on each other um and as i said i think churches can be central to building that if they're willing to take that step and make that effort. Mm. Mm. So what would you say to people who think maybe, maybe that's good for me, maybe it's not, but you know, it's all just a drop in the ocean compared to no new fossil fuel projects or these, these large scale political changes. What's the interaction between the, the personal level and the political level? It's always both end. Um, it's, it's removing the log in our own eye before we remove the log in 
the eye of others. We, we have to have integrity. We have to be taking action ourselves. Um, but there's so much that we can't do as individuals and shouldn't. So we also have to be acting as communities and we have to be advocating. And we have to be advocating strongly because we need to get to that point where we do have a government where both the Prime Minister and the opposition are talking about how we can best address climate change because that's what Australia needs to survive and thrive in the future. So we have to shift politics and that means that we have to have enough of a weight of community and political action to create that shift. Mm. Mm. Good, Jess, very good. So we're getting towards the end of our um, of our time here. So maybe just to finish up, um, and perhaps you've already been saying this, but maybe let's get like really concrete uh, to to close out on. Could could each of you suggest one or two things uh, that you would like to see people do? And it could be a personal action, it could be a political action, but um, something concrete that they could could look up or start to to think about that they could do. Um, Jane, should we go to you first? Sure. Um, I would say, and I think it's been weaved throughout our conversation, is starting from the beginning talking about um, the anxiety and the grief. That is a very personal and lonely place to be. Um, and I think the antidote to that is connecting with others. Uh, and um, I heard Bill McKibben, who's the co-founder of 350.org, talking about having fun like if it this is it is scary what we're facing but if we let that be um what drives us because the first thing um that will disappear when there's fear and anxiety is fun so we need to bring fun back into this this needs to be a place that attracts people the groups that we're involved in need to be places where people feel like they are having fun, that they're getting to know people, that there's real genuine relationship that undergirds all of mm. this. Uh, on the weekend, uh, I was at um, Surrender Conference and we were presenting a climate uh, talk there and Dr Mick Pope, who I had the privilege of uh, co-presenting with, was going through some of the data and there was a young person in the room who got so distressed by it, her mother had to take her out um, and I appreciate every single one of us has had that moment where it's um, the, I'll, I'll use good words, the oh no moment, mm. <laughs> this is real. Mm. Um, and mm. um, we're hoping to connect with that young woman and uh, be able to say, yes, this is shocking, This is it. <laughs> it's paralyzingly shocking, as we have said, for our young people because this is their life. They're not getting some mm -hmm. fun times and then this is coming on when they're older. This is now. Um, but to encourage her that she find people, um, people of faith, people not of faith yet, um, who can, they, she can connect with and that each one of us find those those like-minded and like-hearted people that we can do this journey together so that when I'm having a bad day, uh, so about a month or so ago, Jess and I had a phone call and um, and we both were able to just laugh about yeah where we were at, kids doing this, um, not feeling great. And honestly, after our, our long conversation, I felt so buoyed of I might be struggling where I am here in Western Sydney, but I know that Jess is down in regional Victoria and she's struggling too, but we have each other's backs. We're praying for each other and, and we can have a laugh uh, uh, along the way. And so that's what I would encourage everybody to find those people. If they're not in your physical geographic community, there are great organisations like Common Grace who ca you can connect with and, um, and that's a broader uh, national community that you can be involved with yes that was permission to give yourself a plug too <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> and jess yeah i mean i, I don't want to go super specific or concrete um because there's more lists on the internet that you can poke a stick of stick at of what actions you should take but i think what's important is connecting with why you care um, so finding what's the heart thing for you. Um, mm. Is it about 
um, the connection you already have with nature and your love for it and, and the action that that inspires? Is it your love for your grandchildren? Do you want your grandchildren to know that you loved them enough to take action on climate? Find the thing that is is your heart reason for caring and that inspires you and then join a community if you can one that has um similar heart reasons and that can connect with you around that or if you're part of a church community um can can you bring them along on that journey as well and help them to find their heart reasons to care um and then take action um and yeah um joining the common grace community as well um getting your church involved in the five leaf eco awards um are great ways um to to build that community and to to start channeling that action um but yeah as as long as you are yeah finding that heart connection and then um finding ways to express that in company with others um so that as Jane was sharing, you know, so so that we can, um, if not always buoy each other up, then at least share that we're struggling as well so that we're not alone, so we can keep going and do what needs to be done. Mm. Beautiful. Thank mm. you both for sharing your wisdom and your passion on this topic. Yes. We really appreciate you yes. coming on the podcast. And we hope everyone listening has enjoyed the discussion too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it and you can think of someone who might also enjoy it or might prompt something in them, why not send it along to them? And please review us on iTunes. Even if you don't listen to us on iTunes, those iTunes reviews play around with the algorithm in helpful ways for us to get noticed. And in the meantime, if you want more good news economics, you can check out Mana Matters. Mana Matters is the quarterly publication of Madagum. It's available for free online and you can sign up for the print edition online as well. Managum is also a ministry funded entirely by donations. If you'd like to support the work that we do, Mana Matters, the podcast, going around to churches, producing resources, that same website, managum.org.au, is the place to go. Many thanks to all of you who support the work that we do. And in keeping with the ecumenical spirit of this podcast, we've got a closing quote from the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew I, known to some as the Green Patriarch, the 270th Archbishop of Constantinople in the Orthodox Church. And he says, It's not too late. God's world has incredible healing powers. Within a single generation, we could steer the earth towards our children's future. Let that generation start now. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, John. 